to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this week's health news. Each week, Laura picks four stories, reviews them, and then surprises me with the topics a few minutes before we record. And this week's words are disease donor, too much sleep, toddler needs blood, and OJ. (laughs) (laughs) Very appropriate. (laughs) Uh... Um, do you want to get started with the first article? Sure. I, I don't have any crab updates this week, so we better just jump in. Okay. <laughs> so this one comes from um, Yahoo News, and it's first baby born from deceased organ donor's womb. Here's what you need to know. Oh, my God. I feel so, like I need to know so many things. That's terrifying. So a uh, Brazilian baby was born uh, to a woman with a transplanted uterus from a deceased donor. And the baby was born on December the 15th in 2017 through C-section and is believed to be the firstborn with a uterus from a deceased uh, donor. It was uh, a study in a case published in Lancet and the mother had um, congenital uterine absence, which means she was born without a uterus, was 32 and was translated with in 2016 from a 45-year-old donor. So this is the first time in which um, a deceased donor has donated a, a uterus and successfully given birth. Um, they've done it with a live donor before, but this is the first time. So oh, what you the know article what? is talking about yeah. is that um, this could really ch- make a um, change in um, uh, women who have who are um, infertile and not requiring life donors would be huge. Right. I have to admit that I read this wrong. Like, so the headline is, as you said, first baby born from deceased organ donors womb. Here's what you need to know. I thought I was imagining that like it was a person who was a, who was like pregnant and about to donate their organs and that they like kept them alive on life support and then delivered the baby. And I was very confused because I was like, one, I'm pretty sure that's been done before. And two, like, why, then why is it important that the person's an organ donor? Okay, so I guess, honestly, that's so complicated that there, this might still be the best headline. Because how, how do you convey all that? But this is cool. Right. Yeah, so um, the baby was conve- conceived through um, IFV and uh, born through C-section, um, a transplant. Um, had happened in the U.S. in 2016, but the recipient had it removed days later because of a fungal infection. Oh, um, man. You know what's also interesting about this is that this baby then essentially was exposed to all the anti-rejection medications and immunosuppressant medications that the mother was taking, that right? That's accurate. Yep. So I wonder how they yes. knew that that would be safe. I don't know. Probably because I would assume that she wasn't the first woman who had a transplant who was also pregnant or got pregnant, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. They must have a way of dealing with it. And I think sometimes they like just... if you have kidney yeah, failure, you could still get pregnant, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. and it and it appears that the baby is fine. Wait, the baby was born like a year ago. Yeah, so this is like a study looking at, oh. to, you know, to verify that it, <laughs> it was... Sometimes I feel like... One of the funny things about science is, like, you can't have any common knowledge in science. Everything has to be proven in a way. So, yes. So, we like, sometimes there's research on stuff that people are like, I already knew that. 
And so like in this case, like they did, they published a study to be like, this worked. And like the kid's about to, like the kid just had its first birthday, you know? Like, kid's about to go into college. It's like, hey, <laughs> yeah, kid just got his PhD. Just so you know that uterine transplant worked, you know? Like, it does take a long time though. Academic papers take a long time to publish. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's no, insane. yeah. It has to be like verified and reviewed and, you know, it's a whole mm-hmm. thing. But I just think it's funny, like, they, so, um, and then once the baby was born, uh, they took the uterus back. <laughs> Wait, they did? That, yeah. The woman's uterus was removed after she delivered. Oh my goodness. Oh, I, I like, how did I blip over that? Oh my God. Dude, that is like the most invasive way of having a child. I guess. If you really want to have a kid. Why couldn't they just leave it in? I mean, I guess then she doesn't have to take all those medications and stuff, but, uh. I mean, do you continuously have to take non-rejection like yeah. isn't at a certain point i think for the rest of you your stop? life i mean no i think you have to take it forever oh god that's what i want to know i want to know like why do they take it out <laughs> um you'll be happy to know, know that baylor which did it was like baylor scott and white health is the name of the team that did the transplant and stuff and they made a very handy infographic about how uterus transplantation works and they say that 15.4 percent of women of childbearing age may have absolutely uterine factor infertility meaning a non-functioning or non-existent uterus okay does that seem a little high to you yes but (laughs) wow also i looked it up it's six months to a year that you have to take immunosuppression i take it all back well then Oh, oh, I know. That answers my question about the baby because in this infographic, it says that they can have the, they can become pregnant as soon as a year after transplant, meaning she, she took all the drugs, she got off the drugs, she got pregnant, she had the baby. I'm sure that's how it worked. Well, this this woman, seven months after the surgery, the embryo was implanted and her pregnancy was confirmed. So maybe she was one of the ones that got off the drugs after six months or something. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. So it looks like Sweden was the first country in the world to do this in 2014 when a 36-year-old woman gave birth to a baby via donated uterus. Um, These people are very motivated. I do not think I would go through an organ transplant to have a kid. But I understand that Mm -hmm. if you, like for some people, you want to have your own kid and there's like this drive and nothing else makes you happy. That being said, keep your scalpel away from me. I'm good. I'm good. All right. (laughs) Next story. So our next one comes from uh, New York Daily News, um, and it's too much sleep, too much of a good thing. More than eight hours sleep could hurt you, study says. (laughs) I don't know about... (laughs) So now there's a sweet spot that you have to get. So we know the perils of too little sleep, but it turns out um, there also might be too... Uh, much of a bad thing. So researchers studied 116,632 uh, people in 21 countries over eight years and found that sleeping between eight and nine hours seemed to associate with a 5% risk of cardiovascular disease or dying. Sleeping nine or 10 boosted it to 17 and more than 10 rose to 41. And I just, who, who is able to sleep? 10 hours. Mm, professional athletes. A day. Yeah. Also, did they control for our 
illness factors, I hope, because I wonder if the people sleeping longer were sick. Researcher controlled for age, activity, level, health characteristics such as depression, diabetes, alcohol, mm-hmm. and smoking. Um, but the researchers did say that there could be influenced by health factors not readily apparent. You think? <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, even if even if you're like a healthy person who happens to get colds all the time or to get a lot of infections, just like randomly, like maybe your immune system isn't as robust, you could be quote unquote healthy. But then it, and then you end up sleeping all the time because you're sick. I don't know. But it looks like anyway from the study that they're almost – it's like between six and eight hours they're telling us is like the lowest risk of deaths and ma- major cardiovascular events. So like <laughs> so like you better, you better either get seven or get eight or get six, but like don't get nine and don't get five or you're going to die. Yeah. Or you'll so... just die. There's no other option. What you need to know. Yeah. And I think this is more of a correlation than a causation because – I clicked through to the study as one does, <laughs> and uh, it says this study provides important epidemiological information, but causative factors explaining the described associations with increased cardiovascular risk remain speculative. So that means we don't know if so we don't know if getting less sleep caused it. it. Yeah, but it is interesting. Or more sleep. Oh my God. Is <laughs> there more? Yeah. How many hours? There of are so sleep? much more things to study. Oh my god! Yeah, I know. I love when the the study takeaway is that they need another study. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for that. I'm sure your donors appreciate that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I shouldn't call them donors. I think a lot of research is grant based now, and that's not quite a donation. Makes sense. But yeah. So just I, when you thought it was safe to get enough sleep, it's not safe to get enough not sleep. Sleep not safe. Yeah. I don't know. So I know you've been trying to ensure that you get enough hours of sleep. I know. Okay. Yeah. I have this thing. I call it sleep ninja. And for me, I could be a sleep ninja if I get eight hours of sleep a night. And I've been doing pretty well. Uh, I would say my my Garmin, which unfortunately tracks just like it thinks you're sleeping if you're like sitting in bed, says I'm getting more than eight. But I think I'm really getting between seven and a half and eight. A lot of times I'm getting like just under. It'll be like seven hours and 40 minutes or seven hours and 45 minutes. And that has actually made a pretty big difference in my existence, I would say. But the the thing that happens is that it's like caffeine where if you drink eight cups of coffee a day, that becomes like the norm. And then when you get six, even though you've had a ton of coffee, you don't you don't feel great. It's kind of like that mm-hmm. with sleep. Like I feel like I was getting six and a half to seven before. And, like, getting that extra hour now feels like if I don't get it, I'm like, ugh. Like, it feels a lot worse. So. Your body has adjusted to that. That's the new normal. I, I guess. It's like the time change, right? Like. Yeah. When, like, you're sleeping the same amount of hours or whatever, but, like, your body's like, bleh, because, mm-hmm. like, that's not normal. Right. I don't know. That's how I feel about it. No, I agree. Like where. I do not track. You don't track? You seem to get a lot. I think you get a lot of sleep, though, don't you? Yeah, I I sleep really well. I fall asleep pretty quickly, too. So Yeah, I think... Although I went to bed a little bit earlier last night. I went to bed, like, quarter till 10. And, like, I woke up at 4, ready to go. Oh, no. That is awful. Yeah, I think it's... And I was like, well... Yeah. I miss being able to sleep until, like, noon, but that sounds horrific. I had the opposite situation where I was going to go to bed early last night 
And, and I was like all set to do that. And then I checked my phone before, like as I was winding down and I looked and I was like, Oh, there's like a bunch of calls from this number I don't recognize. And like, that's weird. They left a message. And it turns out that, uh, it was a nurse at a local hospital where I had been, uh, yesterday evening and someone had found my wallet on the ground, which was surprising to me on two levels. One, my wallet like didn't get stolen. And two, I didn't realize that I had lost my wallet. So <laughs> imagine my surprise when someone's like, I found your wallet. And I was like, what? So then, uh, this very kind. Your wallet had your phone number in it? Okay. I still don't know. Maybe it did. I haven't actually looked at it since I got it back, but it might have, it might have had an old business card. For like freelance writing with my cell phone. I don't need, I have no idea how they got my number. But so, so this very ingenious person was like, okay, I can't get a hold of you. So I'm going to leave the phone at my office until this time. Like it, I think she left it in the emergency room until like 830. And then they gave it to security to be like, if anyone was closed, like because they didn't know when I would come. So it was like 10.30 at night when I went over there and got it back. And I was like, just, I'm just like amazed. Apparently the person who found it was a tourist or a couple of tourists from Tokyo. And they just were like, I don't like, what does your country do in such situations? (laughs) So the weirdest thing is that the security guard who picked it up, who I picked it up from, I mentioned the tourist and he said, oh, that's, that's strange because in Japanese culture, if you if you see something on the ground, you leave it there. Like you're supposed to leave it where you found it. And I was like, and he did not appear to be Japanese. Maybe he was, but I was just like surprised because that seemed like a very like specific fact to know about another culture. So maybe he had spent some time in Japan or something. But so suffice it to say that I'm actually a little sleep deprived today because I didn't get home then until late, and then it took me like a minute to be like, what just happened? So. This study is is relevant to me. I want to say I still got hmm, seven, seven, seven and a half. Something. All right, so but you're still in the seat. Sweet wait, spot. before we move on, <laughs> before we move on, I have like a small objection to the story, which is that the last three mm-hmm. or four paragraphs are just quoting other news sources, which I kind of get in the in the case of using a direct quote, but it's like okay, so CNN ran the same story. On Well, ran a different story on the same topic. They got a senior cardiac nurse at the British Heart Foundation to comment on the on the study, which is a really good practice, right? You get someone who has expertise in the field, but who didn't participate in the research to like, just say, this is a big deal, or it's not, or, you know, so her name was Julie Ward. Even though the findings were Mm -hmm. interesting, they don't prove cost and effect. Yeah. So that's like a really, that's a really great quote that's a really great thing to point out. I mean, I want to say honestly that they didn't need a they didn't need an outside source to say that. I mean, the study itself says that. So, that's a little weird. I think they could have gotten better information. But so then anyway, the New York Daily News took the quote from CNN and stuck it in their piece. And it's still the same case of like that's very lazy journalism, right? Um and I get it, like it's an era of budget cuts and everything. But then they also quoted the New York Times, but they're quoting, they're like, they're, they're quoting stuff that like they could have gotten from the study themselves. Like they're quoting the same things that you can read in like the abstract. So it says the researchers controlled for age, activity level and health characteristics such as blah, blah, blah. The New York Times noted, like why they shouldn't need the New York Times. They should just be able to read that in the study and get it. Like, 
You know what I'm saying? I don't know. You don't love the last sentence? Because I do. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, as the New York Times said, there's clearly a sweet spot for hours of sleep. Yeah, it's like, see, I think think this is just not very good journalism because it doesn't – it's like just read the abstract. If you're going to steal something from another publication, steal something that you can't get. Like it was smarter to steal the quote from the steal to, I don't know, to quote the quote from the other source. But even even that, I don't, that's not the one I would have picked. You know, like it just doesn't make any sense. The New York Daily News has a reputation for being like a little more tabloidy than say like the New York Times. But this just seems, I, I don't understand. I mean, maybe it was someone who didn't feel comfortable reading the study. Because you could say, like, sure, maybe they don't have time, but I mean, the full the full piece is it's from the European Heart Journal. It's published online. I mean, I'm able to look at it, like, and I read you that sentence about like, causative factors explaining the described associations remain speculative. So you you don't really even need a you don't you don't need an outside source. They're telling you that. So <sighs> use the outside source to add something that's not in the study. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> so Ready annoying. for the next one? Yes. Um, our next one comes from people.com. Really? And it's um, <laughs> Florida toddler, two, needs rare blood transfusion to survive after being diagnosed with cancer. So a two-year-old has an extremely rare blood type and is fighting for her life after being diagnosed with cancer. Um, she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of neuroblastomo cancer. Um, and then the doctors discovered that she has a, an extremely rare form of blood that makes transfusion, uh, very difficult. Her medical team says that her blood is missing the common antigen that determines a person's blood type called India B. And only people with the same Pakistani, Indian, or Iranian descent are likely to be a match for a South Florida toddler. But of those population, less than 4% of people are missing the Indian B antigen, oh, um, according to one blood. Um, in order for the body to accept the blood, she must receive it from donors of the same an- ancestry that are missing the antigen and have blood type O or A. Um, so all of her relatives and parents immediately donated their blood, but none of them are matches. Um, and so this alert has been out for like a little bit of time. Um, and they said that there's a 0% chance of finding compatible blood. Um, Outside of her. Yeah, pretty ethnicity. much from an ethnic, ethnic group. Um, the blood won't save her, but she won't be able to survive the chemo treatment without the blood. Um, mm, so yeah. um, they, um, um, they have found three donors already, um, including one from the United Kingdom. But um, she needs approximately four to six more donors in order to survive because about based on the amount of blood she will need versus the amount of blood that they would be able to donate. So it's, um, so it's kind it's, of time sensitive. Because so, huh? mm-hmm. I was going to say just get a bunch of blood from that one person. But then I guess it's, it's probably months before they can do weeks or months before they, before they can donate again. Right. So she so she needs four to six more people to be tested. And then uh, people included a link if you think that you might be a good match of where to find more information, which I thought was helpful. Oh, okay. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So um, I didn't know of the existence of this one blood thing either. Yeah. It's a nonprofit organization. But check this out. So they have, 
Yeah, they have 59 types of rare blood with more than 120,000 donors. There's no match for her in their registry either. So, you know, this is one of those um, socioeconomic factor stories, as so many of them are, because I know that when it comes to when it comes to any kind of like tissue or blood donation in the U.S., we don't have as many or we don't have as much from minorities as we have from, you know, white people, which I guess in some ways makes sense. But I think it also speaks to particularly in the African-American community when we where we know that people have been tested on in unethical ways in like kind of recent decades, right? Like I want to say 60s, maybe even into the Mm -hmm. 70s, like testing radiation on African-American patients. And like there was the whole STD thing with uh, prisoners, wherever that was. So I think then you get people that don't trust the system. So then they don't want to donate because they don't they don't trust people working in the medical and healthcare system, which is I don't think is unreasonable. And then you get like this kind of situation where it just makes it that much harder. And I I know she's not African American, this little girl, but it kind of tends to cut across all all of the minorities. And I think. Even though the the history may be different, the reasons may be different, and sometimes it's just a numbers game, it's kind of sad because like we create this system where it's probably really hard to become a doctor, no matter who you are. And so if you are white and or male, it just becomes that much easier, right? And like cultural stereotypes have led more men to do it. So when you say people are going to be perhaps more comfortable with someone who looks more like them or shares their background... You know, you're just kind of – it's a setup for this kind of thing because people aren't as comfortable, so they don't tend to do it as much or, you know, they don't even have the conversation with the doctor. So it's – yeah, it's sad. And this little girl is so adorable. Yeah. <laughs> she's I, – I like that there's a picture where she's wearing a little T-shirt that says glitter is my favorite color. Come on. I agree. That's an awesome – that's an awesome color choice. <laughs> I didn't realize that was an option as a child. Otherwise, I know. Otherwise, totally my favorite color. Uh so the type of cancer she has is a, I thought I heard you, oh, neuroblastoma, aggressive form. So it's affecting her nerve cells. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I once, I once like one day tried to figure out if there's any body part that couldn't get cancer. And I, so I like Googled fingernails and uh, fingernails, like technically you can get melanoma. I guess it's not really in your mm-hmm. nail, but it's like, you know, it would be underneath. And then, cause your nail is dead. And then um, like retina. I Googled that and actually like little kids can get like eye cancer and retinal cancer and stuff. So I could not, I could not find a body part, a living body or like a, you know, like your hair is dead, but like I couldn't find a body part that you couldn't get cancer in, which made me kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, cancer is the cells not replicating correctly. So any, Mm -hmm. anything that has cell replication is able to get cancer, I guess that way. Whoa, you just you just dropped some science on me. <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay, so she needs a donor with similar or the same Pakistani, Indian, or Iranian descent. Man. Yep. And it has the same Indian blood. Oh, Indian, uh, what is it called? Indian B Indian antigen. B and BA or O. o- so that's like a lot of different things. Like yeah. you have to have this and you have to have this and you have to have this. So explains why it's rare. So that's why the call is going out for all peoples. Oh, well, see I hope if she gets uh, it. Uh, me too. All right. You ready for our last article? 
Mm-hmm. So it comes from the Daily Mail in the UK, and it's drinking orange juice could slash your risk of dementia by 50%, study finds. Okay. So Laura, drinking- <laughs> what, is this, what are these sources this week? The Daily Mail? You're just... <sighs> I don't mixing even... Mixing it up. <sighs> okay, I'll give you that. You are mixing it up. There's so many ads on this page, I almost can't see the story. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was like clicking through it and I had to close like five pop up windows. <laughs> <laughs> I know. God. Like, no, I do not want anything. I'm not a winner. <laughs> I don't um, want to buy shoes. <laughs> research attracted almost 28,000 men for two decades to examine how their fruit and vegetable consumption affected their brain power. And they found that men who drank a small juice of orange juice were 47% less likely to be have difficult remembering, follow instructions, or navigating familiar areas. Oh, man. Okay. So an estimated 46.8 million people are living with dementia worldwide. Uh, 850,000 in the UK and 5 million in the US. My grandmother is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no cure. The um, evidence... Reduce the importance of having a healthy diet, saving off to degeneration of the brain, which comes with old age. <laughs> I feel like this study, it's like shock of shocks, comes with old age. I feel like this study is another one of those where it's like, it's like science tells us something we already knew. And I, you know, like what we were talking about earlier, where we can't, like science can't make any assumptions. So like, I bet everyone would say, does eating more produce help prevent diseases and dementia? Sure, it does. Well, it's not just produce and fruit and vegetables. It is Orange OJ juice. specifically. Oh my god! Who? And it's a Harvard study. Yeah, it's also self-reported. It says participants answered yes. questionnaires about what they ate every four years. Yep. So did they tell them to? Did they tell them to drink orange juice? Or maybe no. they they just asked them what they eat, and then they said orange juice, and those people did and better. They, yeah. Six, just 6.9% of people who drink orange juice every day went on to develop poor cognitive function. Hmm. Compared well, look to at this. 8.4% of men who drink OJ less than once a month. Okay. Did you see this paragraph? Fruit consumption overall did not appear to influence the risk of moderate cognitive problems. But drinking orange mm-hmm. juice did? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know about this. I don't know. Like, I wonder if this is just like you look at a big enough data set and you're going to find some kind of correlation. Because what's weird is, what's weird is this person, The study quote, did not intend to find a link between a healthy diet and memory, however. Yeah. Therefore, it lacked data on participants' memory skills at the beginning of the study. They're missing an apostrophe on participants, by the way, um, which would have shown how their <laughs> diet might have influenced this over time. Uh... Okay, this is what I don't, I don't understand. They're quoting, they're quoting Dr. Hannah Gardner, who I'm going to assume was involved in the study in some way. She says, fruit and vegetable consumption may be a piece of the puzzle to maintaining cognitive health, da, 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 da. But I thought we just said that fruit didn't have any influence. It was just orange juice. I under, and she said may, she said may. So that's good because she's not, you know, she's not overstating their findings, but it doesn't seem like Who this study uh, – Hannah, is is she an outside expert or is she from the study? Hannah Gardner? She is a researcher at the University, University of Miami who was who wasn't involved, involved in the research. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so she initially says fruits and vegetables are rich in vitamins and nutrients, blah, blah, blah. These can help protect the brain. 
And then she just says the same thing they ever saying, kind of the same thing at the end. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I, that doesn't seem relevant to me. Like I would like to hear her opinion on why orange juice and not fruit was, was showing the correlation. Like, I mean, the true <sighs> question is how much pulp was involved? Is it no pulp, extra pulp? <laughs> That's actually a good question too, because fiber content could influence. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing they didn't ask them to, you know, to put that down. That detail. Yeah. I don't know. See, I just, well. it's like, it's like props on getting the source, but you didn't use the source. They, like, the writer did not use the source to ask the questions that that should be top of mind on this study, right? Like, it's like the study finds correlation with orange juice, no correlation with fruit. Ask her that. Ask her that. Jesus. Also, fun fact from the from the article: a serving of juice is four to six ounces per day, which is probably about half to a third as much as people consume. Man, this okay. website is a lot to handle. You're welcome. I thought you would enjoy it. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can count like, like okay, there's an ad on the left. There's an ad on the right. There's like a banner on the top that moves down as I scroll down. And there's a pop-up video in the bottom along with ads in the text itself. Ooh, my goodness. Okay, what else did the research find? This is a long article. Drinking orange juice. So nothing on vegetables? Nothing? No. So they just, they just, they're not going to tell us the vegetable findings or they just didn't find anything, I guess. Um, yeah, okay. I, I just stopped. All right, these sources. But I, Overall, I'm speechless, 6. Laura. Overall, <laughs> 6.6 men who ate most vegetables developed poor cognitive function and performed badly on the test, compared to 7.9 who ate the least. Fruit consumption overall didn't appear to influence the risk of moderate congenitive cognitive problems. <laughs> but drinking OJ did. Was I'm not drinking in the OJ. Of neurology. You're not? I mean, no. I think it would be better to eat the orange. They can't prove that. So yes. fruit did nothing. <laughs> Throw these bananas out the window and just get me some Minute Maid. <laughs> oh, God. Study brought to you by Minute Maid. <laughs> I know. I almost wonder. Like... I actually okay, so you know how we've been very positive in our coverage of of larger studies, Laura, like how we've said like it's better if there's more people and blah blah blah. Well, I just was listening <laughs> to um, this nutrition podcast called Sigma Nutrition, which is so much information. I mean, I think this podcast would be appropriate if you are a registered dietitian. But um, one of the guests on the program was pointing out that we've started to like trust meta-analyses too much to say okay so a meta-analysis you know is when you take a bunch of different studies that have some overlap in in the things that they're studying or whatever and you try to put it all together and say like this is what we've found overall well this person pointed out something that i never thought of and that is that there's there can be like there could be a hundred little studies but if they're each super narrow then your meta-analysis kind of isn't really covering the whole spectrum, but it's like you're analyzing a bunch of studies that were narrow but very deep. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not so it's very, like, you, yeah. yeah, it's like you think, oh, well, we did a meta analysis. A so mile like, wide and an inch deep. Yeah, yeah. W- which is like, why we're all assuming, like, well, they put, they, they aggregated all of the research, so this must be right. But it's like, if I tell you I'm studying animals 
and I have like 26 studies on polar bears and one study on monkeys. And then I'm like, I did a meta-analysis of animals and I looked at 27 different studies. That sounds great. But maybe the reality is I mostly learned about polar bears, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Very good point. So what is your current medical fascination? Well, you're not going to believe this. And I swear I chose this before I saw what stories you had picked this morning, but I was like feeling <laughs> tired and my resting heart rate has been like higher than normal for like just on and off for the past week or so. And that's been a little like annoying slash concerning because I, because I'm like, am I getting sick? Am I working out too hard? Is the watch just being stupid? I don't know. So I, this morning I Googled, can you make up for lost sleep? <laughs> and more or less what I found is, is you can't completely make up for lost sleep. So like there doesn't seem to be much of a consensus and the, the sources I used mainly were sleep.org and the National Sleep Foundation. And granted, both of these, I would say, kind of have the bias of wanting to encourage people to sleep more. So mm-hmm. based on that, I don't, they're going to be the last ones who say like, yeah, absolutely. Don't worry about getting sleep tonight. You can catch up over the weekend. But one of them mm. said that you could catch up on about a deficit of about five hours during the week on the weekend. And the other one just said, yeah, it's good to sleep more later but you're never going to make it all back up. So essentially, like, you can get a fraction back of what you missed, but it's like you already you already experienced the, you know, like, the damage is done on some levels. So this article I found says, even when you sleep an extra 10 hours to compensate for sleeping, say, six hours a night for up to two weeks, your reaction times and ability to focus is worse than if you had pulled an all-nighter. Mm. So it's look, looking at sleep deprivation over time. Right, yeah. And that also is why being a shift worker is is so difficult because it's really hard to get the same quality of sleep. And even if you sleep more later, you're not really making up for it. So um, that's like I – wa- I wanted to say good news, bad news, but I feel like that's like so, so news, bad news. It says a potential <laughs> long-term ramifications of lack of sleep include heart disease – obesity, and insulin resistance. I knew about obesity, and I guess insulin resistance makes sense, but, and heart disease is maybe just like the stress of it all, so. And then of course, of course, the sleep people can never resist telling us that you need to wake up at the same time every single day. Yes. Every time they, so <laughs> I feel like, I feel like there's, there's like sleep nagging that happens <laughs> in these types of pieces where, Every time they say, like, you could make up a fraction, and then they have to say, but you may suffer from Sunday night insomnia if you sleep in on a Saturday morning, and that will make it harder to doze off at bedtime, which creates a bad sleep cycle. Also, I want to know, why are we using value words like bad to describe someone's sleep? I think that's something that in medicine we need to we need to consider. You know, like when people say, like, I have a bad knee or whatever. I know what they mean, and I understand that that's efficient, but... I don't like I don't like the idea of calling a body part bad. It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. So did you have a current event this week that you felt like was influencing health news or that we should know about if we are health nerds? Absolutely. Uh Obama Obamacare, the affordable uh uh healthcare 
Um, the ACA open enrollment is happening right now uh, through December the 15th in most states. So if you need health care for 2019, now's the time to sign up. And where does one go to sign up? Healthcare.gov. Okay. We'll direct you to the correct marketplace. I'm testing the link as we speak. It does appear to be working. And you are right. (laughs) And it's December 15th. I also know that they they have slashed the marketing budget for the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. plans. And so I think it is really good that you remembered to tell us about this because people might not actually know about it yet. Which is sad because you only have, (laughs) by the time you hear this podcast, you're going to have less than a week, less than a week to get it signed up. So do it to it, folks. Yep. All right, Laura. I think that's enough bad patienting for me for one day. Anything else you want to add? I'm good. All (laughs) right. So before we let you go, we want to remind you to rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your media, and say a special thank you to Evan Schaefer. Thanks, Evan. He is our theme song composer. You can listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. Until next time, we are Bad Patients.